Welcome to the ED Jam. This week's going to be epic. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Sarah Newman. This chick is crazy. She's awesome. Um, this girl went through med school, couldn't afford to stay in med school, so bounced out, did radiology just so she could stay in, and then went back to med school to do medicine. She has determination like you'll never believe. She's the funniest person to work with. Um, and we're going to chat with Sarah Tone and what a legend. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm Benny and this week we're going to be talking about trauma and I've got um, a good mate in here, Sarah, I call her serotonin, um, and we're going to be talking about trauma. So first of all, uh, welcome Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Welcome to the podcast. Hi Benny. How you doing? Um, so I'm one of the registrars at Sutherland Hospital, cool. uh, that's how we know each other. Um, previously to here, I spent a year doing pre-hospital with uh, New South Wales Ambulance. Um, and prior to that, I did a lot of my training at RPA, which is one of the major trauma centres in Sydney. So you've got a, a lot of trauma experience. A little bit. Enough, enough. Okay. And I'm interested in trauma because uh, my background was in trauma as well, so I quite like it. Um, talk to me about the helicopters, jumping out of the helicopters just quickly. Talk to me. Was it fun? Did yes. you enjoy it? <laughs> I uh, loved it. The, just the whole job and the people in that, in that world, uh, they're all... Um, passionate and keen to get better and care about what they do. Mm. I think that's what makes it such a great job. Yeah, awesome. The helicopters are cool. And helicopters are cool. <laughs> oh, 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 mate, those pilots, I just go, wow, I'd love to do that. Um, you've worked in different different centres and also you've worked for ambulance, so you've seen trauma and different concepts from patients that are first you know, involved in a trauma to the sort of later on down the track, which is really interesting. Um, why, why emergency? Why? As Max would say, why emerge? But why did you choose emergency? And why did you become a doctor? What's your... I always, I can't remember not wanting to be a doctor. I think I broke my arm a lot of times when I was a kid. Okay. Um, and I remember one of the first times getting taken into hospital and just thinking, oh my God, this is the coolest. <laughs> Even though I was a bit uncomfortable with my sore arm. Um, and I think I just, I just love everything about it. But I think emergency, I like the variety and it tends to attract a certain type of people, like yeah. the staff, there's good camaraderie and um, it's always interesting and entertaining. Yes. And occasionally you get to fix something. <laughs> yep. um, and then the trauma that we see with alcohol-related violence and other things, so and domestic violence like stabbing and some... Yep. We don't see too many shootings in Australia. Too many shootings here, no. <laughs> but it depends, what, you know. Maybe something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Should we be hoping for it? I don't know. Yeah, the whole pre-hospital scene, actually, I found after seeing trauma patients in hospital for years, yep, or for a few years, and then it was just a completely different world when you see when you're out on the primary scene and <clears throat> there's lights flashing and there's noise everywhere and there's people all doing their job at the same time in a great way like it just it blew my mind the first few sort of real trauma scenes that I went to in what way did it blow your mind I think they talk about being maxed out with your bandwidth being maxed out yeah and and to be aware of it I think and you even get that in 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 the trauma bay in hospital you know if, especially when things are new as long as you're aware that it's happening but I think it's just sensory overload yeah and then you lose the ability to to function normally because yeah. you, you're just overwhelmed. Okay. And I think that's why it's so protocolised and you know we train all, you know, all of us in hospital in teams and um, 
practice with simulation and things like that so that the, a lot of it becomes a bit routine yep. and then you can deal with all the other stuff mm. I think exposure is another thing too the more you see the more you get used to yeah. it's possible just to share how you do a primary survey sure I have my approach which is the standard approach is the C A B C D E approach okay. um, it used to be ABC but I, um, then it was recognised that uh, controlling external hemorrhage is it should be a priority and was contributing to mortality it's easy to get focused on other stuff and then someone quietly bleed out from a wound that hasn't been addressed <laughs> um, so that's that's it the C is to, to control external hemorrhage so if a patient comes in so, say from outside you need to um, obviously address the the obvious hemorrhage like if someone's hosing out of an amputated leg yeah. vessel you know that's that's fairly obvious probably should stop it Oh, sorry. <laughs> we probably should stop it, yeah. Yeah, we should probably stop it. But often there's also things like patients will have their heads wrapped with like 10 bandages and combines and you can lose a lot of blood into a concealed wound. Uh, same with mangled extremities and things like that. So part of that initial control of hemorrhage is, is having like taking off bandages and making sure that we're putting pressure on wounds. Um, sort of with, not, with the, not just putting a loose bandage on that can just absorb heaps of blood so actually controlling the bleeding mm. and tourniquets okay tourniquets yeah which I know are used in like Afghanistan they're using some cool tourniquets at the moment yeah are. we are too oh you are too <laughs> yeah cool well yeah I think Australian pre-hospital services are all using some they, I don't know if they have fancier ones than us no yours look pretty cool <laughs> I'm sure they look cool I, I look, like the look of them they look like a boss <laughs> so I've gone to see yeah Okay, and then airway. Um, if often a patient will come in from the outside with a with a um, C spine collar on. Mm -hmm. So generally, oh, I should just say too, when you primary survey, when you have a team environment, things should be. They talk about a primary survey or assessment, but you you really, unless you're the only doctor in some tiny hospital in the middle of nowhere with not much help, generally all of these things happen simultaneously. So there'll be someone at the airway assessing the airway. Well, you know, well, there's a, another doctor looking at breathing and circulation and then treating at the same time. But I'm just going through top to bottom. That's good. Um, so airway, I generally just um, ask the patients what their name is and, and to open their mouth. Yep. And you can answer most of your questions uh, from that. So if they can speak, that generally means they've got a patent airway. So open their mouth, you can see if there's loose teeth or blood or um, foreign objects in their dentures push sideways down the right <laughs> way or something like yeah. that. Um, and then if they've got a collar on, you need to open the collar. You need someone to keep in manual inline stabilisation. We can do it with one hand. Um, and then you want to look for general stuff. I think there's a mnemonic, but I never remember mnemonics, so I probably shouldn't use them. <laughs> so I'll get halfway through it. <laughs> what was that letter? <laughs> 12C, I think, is a, say, looking for tra tracheal deviation. Say so if you're worried about attention, you're thorax. I've never seen it. I don't think it's probably very useful. Yeah. Um, it's be a late sign, and yeah. um, you're looking for wounds and swelling. So they might have a, a patent airway at the moment, but they could be potentially going to lose that if they've got an expanding hematoma or something like that. Um, you want to feel f ease for emphysema, so subcutaneous emphysema from a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum. Um, you just want to feel if there's crepitus at the larynx. Um, 
so you'd be worried about a laryngeal fracture, yep. which would be a big issue if the patient needs to be intubated. Not good. Which they probably will be. <laughs> um, distended neck veins, that's another one in the classic, looking for attention in thorax. Again, I think that's probably late and not that useful. Um, Esophageal injury, just want to know if they can swallow. And then you just look, seize, carotids, bruising and swelling. And then you put the collar back on. Um, and then breathing. So the main things that you're looking for are immediate life threats. So a pneumothorax, hemothorax, pericardial tamponade. Um, and you just use, follow the standard look, feel, listen. Um, so you're just looking for obvious things, seatbelt marks, a flailed chest where the mo chest is moving paradoxically. Um, obviously open sucking chest wounds. Um, if, if the chest is, one side of the chest isn't moving. And you also want to do your standard vital signs as part of that, just looking at their respiratory rate. Yep. By this stage, the uh, monitoring will be on, yep. hopefully. Hopefully, yeah, the nurses <laughs> are up to that and they've got all their monitoring on. And you can, can use, you can, you're constantly referring back to your vital signs to help give you more information. Yeah. Um, and then you want to feel for subcutaneous emphysema and you want to feel all over the chest from the, and for tenderness and for crepitus. Um, so you want to feel from the supraclavicular fossae and then across the clavicles, anterior and lateral chest. I kind of get my hands right around the back if yeah, I can. Yeah, you've got to get in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Often you'll be surprised that there's a, the, you stick your hand around the side and it comes back covered in blood or something like that. And then you listen. Now, that, that we should listen. Yeah. I generally listen in both auxiliary, but often in a, in a trauma situation you can't hear anything. Just the sound, the noise? <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Um, but sometimes you can, like a really big um, pneumothorax, you might just hear no breath sounds, but it's unreli I don't rely on what I hear. Yep. And then you want to look at the oxygen saturations. Part of the breath, so the primary survey sort of also includes um, EFAST yep. and chest x-ray, which depends, there's, a, there's different schools of thought now, I think, about because we are getting good, so good at managing trauma that, and things can happen so quickly, yep. like CT scans and things like that. Um, some places don't do chest x-rays. Yep. I think if it can happen quickly and it's not going to get in the way of anything else, yep. it can give you information. Yep. But it probably misses a lot of information that we get with ultrasound. Yep. Um, like a supine chest x-ray is, like, I think it's about 75% sensitive for detecting a pneumothorax. Whereas a ultrasound's approaching 100 in the right hands. And it's easy to do. So that's kind of, so in, still in breathing, you're thinking about doing um, the E part of your farts getting extended, yep. so looking at the lungs for lung sliding. Dreaming so up. obviously if they've got a tension pneumothorax, you need to decompress the chest. Yep. And these days the standard is to do a finger thoracostomy. Done a couple of those, enjoy. I have done a couple of them. Yeah, in a, in a hospital it's probably the standard care. It takes, you know, a minute to do. And then I guess the, you have to follow that with a formal chest drain. Yep if the patient is awake, or sorry, if they're breathing independently. If they're ventilated, the, the chest drain can wait a little bit. In the field, will you anteriorily put a um, decompress? They uh, will, yeah, they've yep. got like um, pneumocaths. I don't know if we have Not them. here, no. <coughs> yeah, which are a bit bigger, and they work. Yep. And that's often, the, if you're heading towards intubating a patient um, that's got a tension, then you sort of, but you don't want to do the, in an awake patient, but they, they're circling the drain. Yeah. It can buy you a bit of time, you okay. can do that, and then intubate them and then do a formal. We'll just do, th you do generally a pre-hospital finger 
thoracostomies because they will be put on a ventilator, yep. put to sleep. And then if you have positive pressure ventilation, you don't actually have to do a formal drain because it... It's going to push that out. Yeah. The other thing is the holes. If people have an open, like a sucking chest wound, yeah. you just want to put an occlusive dressing over it yeah. if it's small or, or suture it up if it's big. I think when I first like learnt about trauma, we used to try and do three-sided yeah, dressings. Yeah, I was <laughs> But I and I I don't think I've ever done one. I don't think they've. I think I've they went out one, of. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> they went out of favour, I think, because people are sweaty and covered in blood, and no one can remember how to do it properly. And there's, I don't think there's any great evidence that they actually work. Cool. So the safe thing to do is cover the hole properly. Yeah. And then put a formal chest drain in to stop there being a tension yep. on that side. Circulation. Yeah. So we should have already made sure that they're not hosing to death from yep. an external hemorrhage. Yep. Uh, with so, blood pressure, like a, in trauma, are we happy to keep them hypotensive depending on the context, or are we...? Yes, yeah. the simple answer is yes. Okay. I think a lot, of it, a lot of changes came out over the years based on um, studies in military or wartime um, where they, where they realised that patients were doing better with less, okay. where there was long travel times to definitive care, and um, I think they realised then that... We used to do too much. We used to fill people full of um, crystalloid, dilute all their clotting factors, yep. try and bring their blood pressure back to normal, which can just um, disrupt or uh, destabilise a clot. Yep. So generally, they talk about damage control resuscitation or permissive hypertension. But basically, you want to resuscitate to, depending on the injuries, but basically um, in blunt trauma to a to a palpable radial pulse, or if the patient's mentating, if they're capable of mentating, um, as in they don't have a massive head injury. Yeah. <laughs> or a map of 65 is kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you want to regularly reassess what, when you're giving like a massive transfusion and things like that, that you're not overdoing it. Yeah. Um, urine output and all the other things sort of probably come later. Basically the circulation is finding, uh, like assessing the degree of shock or whether it's present getting access, working out where they're bleeding yep. uh, internally, um, and then getting them to definitive care or CT, but, and then definitive care if they need OT. Depending on where you are in your, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the, the fast scan is, forms a big part of that. Okay. I think we're doing it too often in like stable trauma because it's not particularly sensitive. Yeah. But it's definitely a, another weapon in your armory of yep. trying to work out what's going on and yep. what the patient needs. Five main views that you do. Yep. So you're just looking for free blood. Well, you're looking for blood in the peritoneal cavity and the chest. Uh, so you do a view in the abdomen. So you look in the right upper quadrant, the left upper quadrant, yep. and around the bladder. Um, and then you're looking in the bases of the lungs for a hemothorax. Um, and then you're looking for a pneumothorax so there's signs you can you can see lung sliding with your ultrasound probe um, and there's a few other signs that you can look for to indicate whether they've got a pneumothorax it's really useful and actually especially in places well I've, worked, I've locumed sort of in places where they don't have any access to imaging and people just come through the door yeah. um, and you can you can get a lot of information with an ultrasound. I so think it saves lots mm, of those places. So as an emergency physician, it's almost like a tool in your armory to use to help in your diagnosis, like diagnostic process. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 
And are you calling through, like in your retrieval, if you've got someone that's got that positive fast, are you just saying, I've seen it in this quadrant, or are you saying I've got a positive fast, you know? Yeah, you do, actually, and it's useful. So the in retrieval, like, they carry um, just a little handheld ultrasound. Yep. And often you, because you've got travel time, you've got time once they're bundled up to, um, or even on scene if you need to do something and you're not sure. Um, but when you're in the back of the ambulance or helicopter heading towards a location, the, the paramedic will call through the host, to the hospital with a major trauma call. Okay. Um, and then they'll give information like that. So then they'll be ready at the receipt. Like I've had a, a um, hemoneumothorax, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't huge or anything, didn't need treatment immediately in the back of the ambulance, but they were all ready to go. Someone was standing there ready to put a drain in as soon as they walked Great. through the door. So that communication is really key in that process. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Uh, D, the bear disability, you start getting bored by the time you get down the to D, you're like, oh, <laughs> mate, I'm getting there. Especially when you add the C at the top. You the bare minimum of disability pupils, yep. um, GCS, and is whether they're moving their arms or legs, yep. basically. I know that's that's very simple. No, but it's, it's perfect. It's good. But if you have a team, often the, the airway doctor can do the GCS. Yep. Often the airway doctor will talk to the patient, assess their airway, get a sense of their GCS um, and their pupils because they're yep. right there at the head. Um, and moving, it's good to have an idea of what they're doing neurologically if you're going to put them asleep too, yep. especially if they have a head injury. Yep. Um, and then E is exposure and environment. Um, and you basically got to make sure you don't miss anything. Yep. So when a patient comes in, I should have a sick patient. So we don't have to take, cut the clothes off every yep. every person that fell off their push bike. Oh, people that love doing that. <laughs> Pull the trauma shoes out on everyone. Yes. Um, but in a in a, a major trauma patient, you need to get good exposure early, full monitoring, and then cover them up because you don't want them to get cold. Yep. Um, and then we, I guess with the E, you're looking for places that you might miss, um, the back of the head, their back, their auxiliary. Um, what else? Like that log roll is really important to see the back of the... It is, although some people, some places are even... Some places will delay the log roll okay. in certain state until they've scanned them. Okay, cool. Um, I think you need to see the back yeah. and do things like get get them away from bits of shards of glass and you yeah. know that can all be done pretty quickly. The argument against it is that you could an unstable pelvis yeah. could potentially be um, you know you could dislodge and have massive hemorrhage. Yeah. So when you do log roll, you shouldn't. You should only log roller as much as, you know, sort of 15 degrees or something like that, yeah. enough to see and feel without yeah. um, disrupting them too much. And if you have a suspected pelvis teapot, like a teapot... Yeah, I should have mentioned this in circulation. Right. Yeah, so a pelvic splint. Yeah. Um, and they generally come in now. Most of them will be put on. Yeah, because I used to see the old sheets and they were always put, like, yeah. really high still, or really low. Well, even the new... Even the, the current... Um, pelvic splints, they are often put on too high. Yeah. And it really should be the top of it at the top of the, the crests. But generally the middle of it is, when you see them, is put on the crest and you need to bring it down a bit Yeah, lower. it's like they're wearing a corset. When yeah. I've seen them, I'm like, are you wearing a corset or a pelvic bind up? Yeah. yeah okay. And you can, like if you don't have them, you can still use a sheet. Yeah, good. Yeah. It's a, that's another, that's uh, that's controlling hemorrhage, so that should okay. really, I mean, it should happen immediately but it's part of your C I yeah. guess um, 
And then I guess other stuff, checking their temperature, yep. fixing everything up. So making sure cannulas are in and yep. taped properly and you've examined all of their, um, you've done a sort of feel down their legs as well. Yep. Airway breathing circulation, yep. fast scan, yep. making sure there's no external hemorrhage and then and that limbs are in the general position that yep. they need to be in. That's yep. all part of controlling hemorrhage too. Yep. Cool. And we covered, uh, you know, plus or minus chest X-ray, plus or minus pel pelvis, pelvis X-ray. Yeah. yeah. And again, you can, it's pelvis X-rays miss a whole bunch of injuries and you're going to scan it anyway. Yeah. But I think inf having information like that, if it's if it's available, is helpful because it just makes you a bit more careful and, yep. um, and also helps you with your thinking about where is this patient going to go. Mm. If they've got an obvious pelvic injury, do they need to go for... Um, embolization rather yep. than to a theatre or to a hybrid theatre where they can you know, pack this, the peritoneum as well as embolize the sort of pelvis. Yeah. Blo um, blood work on these guys, um, what are you ordering? If everything. Everything. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Don't everything. you hate that when we say that? Just Order everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously you want, you want a gas. Yeah. And yeah, and we all know that you know the initial hemoglobin may not is obviously not going to be a representation, but it can be quite normal. Um, and then you want a full blood count for obvious reasons. Um, and then EUCs. So with trauma, you you basically get multi-organ failure um, if it's bad. So quite, quite quickly, then the once. Yeah, you or can, and even delayed. so, like the massive tissue injury that you get. Um, even it's not just massive hemorrhage that causes it's just massive tissue tissue injury causes a whole cascade of sort of events at a cellular level yep. that makes everything worse um, so I remember when I was in SRMO I actually probably shouldn't admit this because no, I probably should have known better <laughs> no 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 admit it it's it was good. one of the biggest bit, like my first big traumas and I remember I was holding I was doing inline manually and I inline stabilization yes and I had sore arms for about three days afterwards and I think I actually probably impeded their ability to get a tube in because they were struggling I think I was holding the jaw so they couldn't <laughs> and I was fighting as hard as I could to stop that head moving yeah. which is not ideal um, and then I remember the bloods came back and someone was calling out the results and they're like oh they've got an INR of 1.8 and I was and I'm like how could they they're not on blood thinners yeah. or but, um, and I just, I didn't know at that stage that, you know, so it, it causes a massive trauma causes a coagulopathy yep. and that's it. that was on arrival. Yep. So, you know, things happen and it causes like an inflammatory response. So, you know, you get elevated white cells um, and you get a coagulopathy, like a DIC sort of picture, yeah. um, which is why the initial treatment is so important to, so we, th those things that, uh, that sort of cause them to spiral down the drain, the little things. So, hypothermia. Well, I'm just hinting at the. You're hinting at a lethal triad. Of triad. I'm, I'm sure. You, I think you've mentioned it pretty much. The yeah. triad. What? What is the triad? Um, it's not some cult or group. I think. No, it's, it probably is. Yeah, it probably is. Uh, so, it's, it's the the combination of um, which is sort of set off by hemorrhage and trauma itself. Yep. Um, of hypothermia so people bleed and also they're outside the hospital sitting in a car waiting to be cut out yeah. for a long time it's they get close. cold and they bleed which makes them cold as well yeah. um, and 
they get acidotic, so with they get multi-organ failure and yeah. or, or low perfusion state and lactic acidosis, and so they become acidotic, um, and they become coagulopathic. Yeah. So you get tiny little like micros from, but so mi- micro clots forming, and then you, everything's overactivated. So your clotting's overactivated, your anti-clotting is overactivated, and that yeah. probably wins out in the end. And then you use up your clotting factors doing this little microscopic stuff um, and then so you, you've got you run out of the ability to clot off the big stuff okay. and then in the old days when we used to give crystalloid you know th- then you're further diluting yep. their ability to clot um, so those three things are really important if we can do little things to try and counteract that because they're, they're, they're going to kill you yep. and so hypothermia we're warming the patient up with yep. warm fluids or warm blood um, we acidosis by fixing everything. We kind of we fix, fix it. everything. <laughs> Talking about coagulopathy, how what kind of drugs are we can we give to help people in terms of that coagulation? Or so transoxamic trans- acid is one yeah. of the big ones that's sort of come about since the crash two trial, I think. Okay. Um, but so that that basically we it stops us breaking down clot, cool. and the earlier you give it, that is suggests the better. There's actually a study going on pre-hospitally at the moment okay. where they're trying to see um, how if giving it even earlier mm. makes a difference. What's I think the that's space? Basic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not involved in that. Hashtag. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, it's good. And actually, I, it's good when you have a team that sort of train them, someone might just, it just materialises from your friendly yeah. nurse who <laughs> reminds you that you haven't given it yet. Hey, what about the? Oh yeah, oh, it's, it's there. I remember, I remember. I've got it drawn up for you. Yeah. But we give. So you give a, a gram. A gram. Um, exactly. And then you give it an infusion of eight hours of another gram. Yep. Um, so that's definitely made a difference. I can't, I can't quote the figures, but they're, they're impressive. Good. Um, I like impressive figures. <laughs> yeah, except I can't quote them. Doesn't <laughs> um, The other big thing is giving balanced blood products, and yeah. everyone has. It's hard. It's not easy to predict who needs a massive transfusion. Yeah. In if they're not super sick, but if they're super sick, it's obvious. Right? Yeah. Um, some things that can kind of help if they have a shock index greater than one. Okay. So that's just a really easy thing to work out. How do you work that out? I'll, go, I'll do it back to front now. Do it back to front. <laughs> no, <that's not. laughs> no, it's the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. Okay. So basically, if their heart rate's greater than their systolic blood pressure, even if they look quite well, they can be sort of com- well compensated. Um, that predicts the need for a massive transfusion. Irrespective um, of medications they could be on? Well, that's always it. So that's another minefield as well. Okay. But they generally, th- those will generally mask things. So they'll, attention. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So the oldies, actually at, at Sutherland, I've had a few um, patients that we have to be careful in the sort of mm. over 65s that have sat in the department for hours that have very innocuous sort of trauma mechanisms like yeah. falling over from standing <laughs> height. Yeah. And I've had a, a really big liver laceration from okay. that in an old lady, and she was in the department for ages, and she didn't just didn't show any signs until mm. she stood up to go home, and had a presyncope, and she had a belly, she had you know liters of, of blood in her belly, mm. um, and I've had another uh, patient who had a hemothorax again okay. from falling from a standing yep. site on a pixabar, and that so. was huge, and he didn't show any signs of it. Yeah. 
just sat there quietly for hours. <laughs> but yeah, um, but going back to the blood products, you, it, everyone's the sort of pa- the bond the bundles that come from your blood bank might vary. Yeah. No one really knows the best combination of giving. Yeah, one to one to one. Yeah, two that's the two standard. to one. The two to one. It's like a musical note. <laughs> one to note. one to one is kind of easy to okay. remember. I think, one and to I, one to one. the big trauma centres are using fancy um, assays to work out what what blood part of what product they're short of and, and replacing it like that. But like a rotum and take yeah, yeah, Okay. Yeah. Right. But we don't obviously have yeah. that. Um, and then you add cryo as well when you're yep. looking at your fibrinogen that gets consumed. And they mentioned like a sterile cockpit. I don't know, do you, if you're running your resource, do you like to keep it quiet? Do you, ambient noise, are you very clear in terms of uh, delineating roles? I have been, I have shushed I have shushed people in my time. Yeah, nurses, I know, I'm a talker. I, I think people need to speak up, but they need to only talk if it's directly relevant yep. to what's happening. Because yep. um, if you have ba- that background chatter, it's a nightmare. That's yep. a nightmare you do, you just have to go quiet. Yeah. Um, and people need to feedback what they're, just what they're doing back to the team leader. Yep. But it's the, te- it's the team leader's role to keep updating the team about where they're heading and sort of time frames and things like that, which yep. can make a difference so that everyone's on the sh- same page the shared mental model the shared mental model yes. I like it do you have a huddle before a trauma comes in just to talk about your roles do you sort of definitely if you debrief? can definitely yep. if you can okay, cool. yeah if you get I the think, time yeah don't waste the time if you get if you get notification yep and is there still code crimson I've heard I remember that sort of being out there about you guys out in retrieval if there's someone who's actively bleeding that you think needs to go straight to theatre yeah Does that that's still good. occur yes yeah okay Sometimes it can be a bit of a battle to between. I think they're more and more because we can. We're good at when I say we, or you know, hospital people, yeah. emergency <laughs> people, are good at managing trauma. Um, and I think most surgeons would prefer a CT scan before they do anything, yeah. and I, and that makes sense, yeah. you know. But and um, it used to be like a bit of a battle. These this patient needs to go to the theatre and. And immediately, yeah. but I think now actually, you know, if you if it's going to take you another ten minutes and it's, it could give you all the information to change everything, it, it just the time seems to blow out. Yeah. I think you need to keep the wheels moving towards where they need to go if that's mm. the case. I, I think also something you raised, which was really interesting, was you mentioned about the subtle trauma because um we all love the big trauma. I know me, the thoracotomies, I got excited about you know being younger and I loved all that stuff, all the lateral canthotomies. I'm like, wow, what a yeah, it's the best thing I've ever seen. But um, the stuff, you know, kids on bicycles falling off and getting handlebars to their chest, patients that come in that we sort of think, oh, that's not trauma. Yeah, and, and that's we what have... we will get. I mean, we we definitely here have, you always get stabbings and things like that walk through the door that can be catastrophic. Yep. Um, or, the, you know, just there's someone banged by a car outside that stumbles in and then collapses. Or yep. But there's a lot, especially the younger patients and the older patients with, with not very... Um, high mechanism injuries yep. that can still have really nasty, um, yep. and we shouldn't assume. Beware of the normal vital signs. Okay, there we go. Don't assume just because you got normal vitals on your obs. Yeah. Okay. Um, and make sure you thoroughly, thoroughly examine all your patients. Yeah. Uh, definitely, there's a trend where they, oh, their blood pressure's okay. <laughs> they look fine. They walked in. They walked in the, you know, even though you're like, oh, they, they've got a handlebar to their belly, that could be bad. Yeah. And, and then you find them in a corner, sort of grey <laughs> and sweaty. It's not, not good. It's not a good... And I, I think we're getting, like you said, we're getting better at that physical assessment, which is what 
medicine should be going back to is that physical assessment and nursing back to that physical assessment and looking at your patient, what do they actually look like? Yeah. Um, you know, what do they actually, how do they examine? What are they showing signs of? What would be your take home for junior do- doctors, junior nurses in relation to trauma? Um, if you could sort of harp one, if you could say serotonin, Sarah has said one thing <laughs> on trauma that I want to remember and take into the clinical setting, what would it be? I think do, doing the simple things well. Okay. So, and working as a team and feeding back what you're doing. Yep. Um, and speaking up when you notice things if other people haven't noticed. All those little, it's all those sort of, yeah. and then just doing little things well like like securing your cannulas so they don't fall out. Yeah, stopping bleeding, not just putting a big bandage on it. Okay. So, hey, hey. Yeah, cool. Giving blood early. Giving blood early. Yeah. Not giving two litres of saline. Yeah, not, <laughs> not, that's not good for our patients. No, no, it's actually pretty, it's it's basic, really, medicine. But but it happens. People are, you know, focusing on other things. A nurse or doctor's hung up a bag of fluids. They're not concentrating. They've run across to do something else. And they look around and the, the whole litre of saline's run through the line. Yeah. It's an, It's an easy mistake to make. I've probably done it. I may have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, sorry. Um, oh, mate, it's been awesome to chat with you. Oh, thanks, um, mate. I've loved to hear about you know all of the stuff you've got to say about trauma, and it's super interesting and it's awesome working with you. One one trauma story you think that would be uh, that you because you know I do ask most of the time when anyone's on retrieval, I ask what's your story, <laughs> you know what's happened. Tell me a story, something good. Well, the, one of the first ride-alongs that I went to, it's about got a bad outcome though. So. Okay. <laughs> Trauma doesn't always have good outcomes. It was probably a good example of, um, so I was doing a ride-along with another doctor when I was learning the job, and I was there, it was a, a, a three-year-old that had, was actually, yeah, it was a three-year-old that had been run over by um, a car, mm. and the call actually came through that it was a seven-year-old, and this is a good example of, of having your saturating your bandwidth so I was completely out of my depth I thought I was pretty good at yeah. my job yeah, in hospital <laughs> before then and I was just like a total rabbit in the headlights when yeah. we arrived on the scene with ambulances everywhere people with their phones out filming people mm. screaming crying and then it was kind of dark so you couldn't see properly and there was this, like a, a child with tire tracks on okay. and so it's kind of visual things that I think is part of you and having an awareness that that's happening to you is important yeah um, and I just had one job to do the blood. It took me a lot longer than it would normally take me. Yeah, well, I can understand. And by the time I looked up, I think the doctor had intubated the child, put two um, finger thoracostomies in. Um, I started giving blood, and and that was. It took probably five minutes for me to realise that it wasn't actually the child wasn't seven; they were way younger. Because mm. I just didn't. You're not processing the information in the same yep. way. I was like, hang on. So to work out how much blood to give Um, and then they put a pelvic binder on and everything happened so quickly walking back to the ambulance I think the scene time was about 15 minutes I couldn't believe it felt like um, I didn't like I don't think I was like in a dream state (laughs) I I mean my role wasn't important I was meant to be watching still disassociated from where you were yeah and then I didn't even notice that the child had got ROSC Um, so they were doing CPR when we got there that was the other thing and all that stuff, you just get overloaded with all this sensory information, and then yeah. it's amazing that like everyone else, the, I was so impressed. Like, yeah. hardly any there was hardly any noise from the team that were working on the child, and things just happened without like with barely a word, and and he was in the back of the ambulance in like fifteen minutes with a rosk. Wow, how do you, how do you 
do you, as a physician, uh, you know, even how do you deal with? Because obviously, seeing all this trauma, it does have an impact on you as a person. Like, there's no evidence shows that you know the more, you, the more we sort of see this sort of stuff, it has a, yeah. it can it can affect us. Do you drink heavily? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no. You know, do you uh, debrief as a team? Do you sort of internally, you know, like in medicine when you're doing emergency, we do see a lot of stuff. So do you sort of go, all right, that was really bad. That was heavy. How, how do I? I think debrief is really important. Okay. And you notice with ambulance, like it's really part of their culture. Great. After every big job, yep. back at the, sometimes back at the ambulance base or back just outside the hospital, yep. they'll do like a hot debrief Great. and talk about how people are feeling and how they think went, things went. Yep. Sometimes there'll be a chaplain there. Okay, good. Um, they, there's always follow-up. I couldn't believe the first few jobs that I did at ambulance, people like look back through your case reports, senior medical people and senior paramedics um and like called me out of the blue just like oh that sounded like that was a heavy job how are you doing nice Um, isn't that great yeah and i think we need to talk about stuff we do we um even just talk to your mates who are medical my non-medical mates are not very good no (laughs) it's hard it is hard to discuss these cases and i think there's some cases that you think that will affect you and they don't and then suddenly this anomaly uh, one case comes through and you're like i'm really shaken this one's really got me and it could be a, whether it's circumstance or you yeah, look like someone or... When your bucket's full. Well, mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, Benny. Um, and we'll see you. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, there. Bye. Cheers. Any advice given on the ED jam should not be taken over your local medical practitionery. Retake. <laughs> no, I'm we'll retake.